Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another, well, watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Cameron Triggs. Welcome, Cam. What's up, Lisa? I'm glad to be back. <laughs> Cam is in North Carolina now, in Raleigh, Durham. Are you in Durham or Raleigh, or is it the same thing? I always get confused. Um, I get confused, too, So since <laughs> I'm new. Um, we're actually in Morrisville, and, uh, which kind of sits in between Raleigh and Durham. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. Um, and we have today Joseph Torres. Welcome, Joseph. Hi. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Joseph's wrote, written a blog uh, for us for our, our um, Jude 3 blog. And today we're going to talk about apologetic methodology. And for those who don't know what that means, uh, <laughs> that's just practical ways to defend the faith. Um, so, Joseph, for those who don't know you, would you give a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, where do I start? Um, I uh, was raised by Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home. Didn't really embrace the faith uh, personally until I was about uh, 17 or so. And um, shortly thereafter, maybe a year or so later, I just felt really um, just a desire and a calling to go into Christian education. So I pursued a uh, degree in biblical and theological studies. That was in, in Nyack College. It's actually in their extension campus in New York City. Um, after that, I went and graduated and went to um, Orlando, where I studied with um, under Dr. John Frame and some others at RTS Orlando. And um, I've just been I've been since then. I've been teaching college courses on all kinds of things: Old Testament, New Testament, uh, worldview. Um, you name it, a little bit of everything, and try to keep myself busy with um, some some writing and, and some teaching. Awesome, awesome. So we'll let Cam kick it off with our first question. Yeah, Joe, I just want to ask, what are the different methods of apologetics? And uh, as you break that down, could you give us some examples, some popular examples for anyone who might be interested in apologetics so they can say, oh, this person utilizes this method? Sure, yeah. Um, the truth is, is that going into um, and answering a question like that first thing people need to know is that there's a lot of different ways to, to cut up the pie. Mm -hmm. um, so different books on this or articles will um, have some different nuances. One of the most popular ways is found in the view, uh, five, book, uh, five Views on Apologetics, mm -hmm. um, edited by Stephen Cowan. And um, he'll, there he mentions five different views. The way um, I tend to do it, and I think some other uh, people who uh, see things along the same ways that I do um, in the presuppositional approach would traditionally I would divide it up into three different approaches uh, and then some subcategories. The first is what we'll call the, the traditional approach and there uh, we'll find three different categories that in that five views book. So we'll find the classical method, um, what's called the evidential method and the cumulative case method. Um, and um, just to kind of give people uh, an understanding of who falls into what categories, um, one of the most popular, if not the most popular online um, 
well, not just online, but uh, apologetics debaters William Lane Craig. So most are familiar with him. If you see uh, more than two or three of his debates, you'll typically see he'll do the exact same thing in all of his mm -hmm. debates. Right. And that's um, it's typically two steps. The first are arguments for the existence of God, and this is the traditional kind of classical approach. Two steps. First are theistic arguments. Um, before we argue that Jesus is God's son, uh, we have to argue that there's a God to have a son. So they would argue that first you have to go and, and, and demonstrate the existence of God. And he'll normally do that in a couple of different ways. And then from there, the second step is, okay, now that we've established that a God exists, which God exists, and then he'll move on to more detailed um, historical arguments for Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reliability of the New Testament, etc. So that's the classical approach. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see that, like I said, in Craig, in uh, Thomas Aquinas, and uh, well-known apologist Norman Geisler, um, written well over 60 books, um, classical apologist to the T. Mm -hmm. um, the second is an evidential method. This is the second category of what I'm calling the traditional method. The evidential method is very similar to the classic arguments. Uh, the classical approach has a lot of the same arguments, but it doesn't emphasizes heavily this two-step approach. Mm -hmm. um, they will often will argue that you can just do a, a one-step, which is just go straight to the resurrection. See, if this happened, what kind of God uh, may exist that would um, bring Jesus back from the dead and say, if this happened, what else can be true? Right. So um, they'll say theistic arguments, arguments for the existence of God are helpful, but there you don't have to press on the two-step uh, approach. So the evidential says it can be one step, you can go straight to the evidence and therefore determine the truth of Christianity in that way. Now the kind of arguments they use, like I said, are often very similar to that of the classical, if not no different. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one is what's called the cumulative case method. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that with, in the book, it was defended by the late uh, Paul Feinberg, but you also find guys like uh, Douglas Grotheis, he's written a big big book on Christian apologetics lately, excellent book, um, and he also would probably describe himself as a cumulative case apologist. And then even someone like C.S. Lewis. Um, this is a little, this method, again, uses a lot of the same arguments, which is why I'm lumping them together under the yeah. traditional method. Um, the cumulative case is a little less formal. It doesn't try to think of just one step or two steps or um, or any one argument sealing the deal, so to speak, but rather kind of like a legal case. It just brings in various arguments from different fields, from different arenas to try to say all of these things point together to saying that Christianity is the best explanation for all of this evidence out there. Mm. Um, and so that's the cumulative case uh, method. Uh, the second major, so now I'm contrasting the traditional method, would be um, what I'm going to call here, and there's a lot of nuance to this, but I'm just going to go straight for saying this, the presuppositional method. Mm -hmm. um, you have a lot of different apologists who are identified as presuppositionalists. So you have like a Gordon Clark or an E.J. Carnell. But what I'm referring to here is uh, a Van Tillian presuppositionalist. Uh, those who are particularly taking their, their cue from Reformed theolo uh, theologian and apologist Cornelius Van Til, who was one of the founding uh, professors at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And, um, and some have argued for calling it a covenantal method. People who identify here are a little bit more 
uh, more contemporary apologists and thinkers. So, of course, Cornelius Van Til himself, um, some of his students, John Frame, um, Greg, the late Greg Bonson, um, James Anderson, and Scott Oliphant at Westminster, and there are others um, as well. And um, this approach, um, it's trying to approach apologetics from a particular theological point of view. So it's trying to say, how do we take the um, reformed theology that comes out of the Westminster Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, etc., and apply that to the questions that apologetics is dealing with. Um, I would say that this is a kind of two-step approach. The way Van Til would have described it is he uses an illustration that's essentially two-step, which is first is you kind of want to deconstruct when you're dealing with an unbeliever or you're dealing with their views, for instance, on God. You may want to ask what their views on ultimate reality are. You want to listen carefully. And then you want to, in my terminology, not his, you kind of want to deconstruct that. You want to show the problems, the inconsistencies with those things and say why ultimately the kind of God or the kind of ultimate reality that they want to embrace doesn't account for all kinds of things that they really think are important and necessary for life. And so that's the first step, the deconstruct, and then there's the reconstruct, which is to then ask this uh, non-Christian to look at things from your point of view and see how the uh, the Christian doctrines of creation and providence and, and the image of God and sin, how they account for the world that we live in and how they make sense of those things that uh, both Christian and non-Christian feel are essential for, for life. Um, so that's and that's the approach that I kind of lean towards is that that kind of presuppositional approach, um, and then the last one and this doesn't always get um, thrown in there, but I think it's helpful just for the sake of understanding because oftentimes people mistake this with a presuppositional approach is uh, fideism. Um, fideism coming from the uh, Latin word uh, uh, fide, which means to believe. I believe is. The, the idea that, in a sense, it's almost anti-apologetic. Uh, it believes that ultimately faith is irrational or irrational. Um, that is to say, it doesn't have to do with reason. And that arguments for God don't need to be put forward. Um, and that ultimately, um, faith is a kind of uh, embracing a mystery. Um, and what's interesting is, is that most apologists that hear this kind of thing are just allergic to it. They want nothing to do with it. But oddly enough, you have some really sharp guys. You have some really sharp Christian thinkers that embrace this view, whether formally or informally. So uh, names associated with this uh, fideistic approach would be um, guys like Soren Kierkegaard or Blaise Pascal, um, which a lot of apologists just love Pascal's stuff, um, or, or um, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. Those are kind of the big three names that are associated with that kind of approach. And again, I bring that up because oftentimes people will confuse that with some emphases of presuppositionalism, um, but we can get into that if you want to. Uh, Joe, let me ask a question uh, to back up some examples of uh, evidentialists. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I didn't. Um, evidentialists, okay, sure, would be um, John Warwick Montgomery, heavy emphasis on history. He was also um, uh, into law as a lawyer, so um, there's, like I said, that example of this argument being a little bit more informal, more like a legal brief, where Montgomery's background actually is in law. Mm -hmm. um, Gary Habermas uh, would be one big uh, in 
terms of arguing for what he calls a minimal facts approach to arguing for the resurrection. And um, I'm trying to think of other evidentialists. Um, I'm going blank on others. Those are probably some of the two most well-known evidentialists. Mm -hmm. One could argue that someone like a, um, even a Lee Strobel is more like a, an evidentialist. If you look, mm -hmm. for instance, his best-selling case for, for case for Christ, mm -hmm. um, if you just look at where he starts, it's much more grounded in saying, you know, what is the manuscript evidence for the Bible? Is it reliable? What do we believe about um, Jesus' uh, body? Was it resurrected, etc.? He starts there. He doesn't mm -hmm. start further back with arguments for um, the existence of God. Yeah. Before uh, Lisa jumps into our second question, um, fideism is something that you kind of encounter in a typical layman or, or, or a church member or even a college student. Um, could you talk about maybe some of the pitfalls of just holding to I just have faith but I don't have facts or arguments or justification? Yeah, um, hmm, where do I start? That's There's a sense in which I'd rather have somebody be a fideist than just rejecting the faith, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's, there's a sense in which it's almost a discipleship issue. Okay. Right? So we want to say that uh, God himself calls us to love him with our minds. Right? So that's saying that we should evaluate our faith um, intellectually in a, in a way that honors God for sure. Right? So we say that in, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we don't want to think in ways that dishonor God. But we should evaluate the evidence uh, for uh, for um, for the existence of God, for the truth of Christianity, we should listen to and try to understand um, arguments against the faith, mm -hmm. um, just because that's an application of, of the, essentially the golden rule. Right? If we want non-believers to hear um, our perspective, then we should um, respectfully understand their uh, points of view. So it's a discipleship issue in that we want to love God and we understand that God is a God of truth. God does not deny himself. God thinks logically and rationally. He doesn't contradict himself. So we should try to, as his image, think rationally and logically and think through these things mm -hmm. um, uh, regarding our faith. So we, at a practical level, though, um, we want to move away from kind of a fideistic approach because at least, in the, again, it's related to discipleship, is so many people have never heard arguments in defense of their faith. Mm -hmm. They just think it's just the subjective kind of embrace. I had an experience. Mm -hmm. And then they go off to university or they go and they have a conversation with somebody who has thought these things mm -hmm. but has arrived at very different conclusions. And they're just overwhelmed. And they don't have the kind of... Um, intellectual um, muscles, so to speak. They haven't developed those to, um, to critically engage, to, to ask questions about mm -hmm. the counter-arguments, ask, does that make sense? Is that based on fact? Is that coherent? Is that logical, etc.? Um, and so they come to a point where, for them at least, they believe it's either I have to um, reject Christianity, mm -hmm. right, or I have to embrace it in spite of the facts. Mm -hmm. And, some, and with uh, those of us who um, love apologetics and believe that it's helpful, uh, we want to say, no, no, there, there's another way, which is to say um, you can embrace your faith um, intellectually. Mm -hmm. You can, it doesn't just, um, we don't just um, 
regeneration isn't just to affect our hearts and our emotions, but like Romans 12 says, it's the, it's the renewing of our minds as well in God-glorifying ways. And so we want to think through our, our, our faith seriously. It's not just abandon the faith or have an empty-headed faith. And I think you kind of touched on the next question in, in answering Cam's last question. Why are these methods important to um, believers? Yeah, well, the things that I just said there are probably more applicable to the importance of apologetics generally. Mm -hmm. um, now, when it comes to understanding, let's say, those specific methods, mm -hmm. classical and the presupposition and all those kinds of things, why are those important? Mm -hmm. Well, if you get into uh, apologetics and you see its importance and its relevance to um, engaging worldviews and engaging in evangelism, etc., you want to know where the person's coming from, right? So you want to know what are the um, foundations for the the author, the thinker that you're engaging here. So if you're reading a Christian book on apologetics, you want to know well, what is this biblical? Are, are the things that he's saying biblical? Do they reflect a biblical understanding of God? Um, are, are they philosophically sound? Are they true? Um, you, what does it assume about God? So oftentimes, you, and this has happened in the history of the church, where you can have somebody who puts forth an apologetic to persuade others of the truth of Christianity, but in reality, they've downgraded the faith. They've abandoned things of the faith, and they've, they've lowered the bar to make it more palatable to non-Christians. Well, in that regard, yeah, it's important to know about different uh, methods because then that's not really Christian apologetics. Mm -hmm. that's, um, you know, that's the lowest common, no, lowest common denominator apologetics. Mm. Um, just seeing what you can throw out there that the unbeliever will um, accept. And so we want to say these things are, it's helpful to be self-conscious. Mm -hmm. And simply, it, this is a way of saying be a Berean, right? Mm -hmm. When you're um, reading apologetics as you would read anything, ask, is this biblical? Is this mm. true? Is this sound? Etc. Joe, let me ask a question. Some of all, all the camps of apologetics methodology mm -hmm. have a place for what we would call the traditional arguments for God's existence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's helpful for our listeners to know some of those, um, to be able to utilize them in their intellectual conversations uh, with Christians and non-Christians. Um, what are some of those traditional arguments? Yeah, um, Traditionally, there are four main arguments, and then, of course, as you would expect, there are always sub-arguments or little twists on each one. Um, there would be what's called the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, and the moral argument. Mm -hmm. um, and those are just in terms of what's considered the traditional arguments. Mm -hmm. We can um, maybe discuss the transcendental argument in, in a moment. So the um, cosmological argument argues for uh, the existence of God based on the very idea of causation and cause, cause and effect, and what that implies. Right? So the simple argument would be that um, um, everything, I'm trying to think of in terms of um, a simple three-line argument. So you say um, everything that is finite has a cause. Mm -hmm. The universe is finite, therefore the universe has a cause. Mm -hmm. And only the conclusion will be like, and we call this cause God. Mm -hmm. And there are different kinds 
of, of cosmological arguments. Right. Um, the second would be the teleological argument, mm -hmm. and that's a uh, fancy word comes from the Greek word telos, which means end or goal mm -hmm. um, or purpose. And so it coming, it's building off of the idea of design or purpose or intention mm -hmm. and saying that when we see things that show um, complexity and show purpose um, and show design, that the, well, the simple argument is um, anything that's designed requires a designer. The universe is, shows and evidence is designed. Therefore, the universe has a designer. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which, for instance, arguments for intelligent design are a high-level form of a teleological argument. Mm. Um, the ontological argument, and um, you'll notice the pattern that most of these are building off of Greek terms, comes from the Greek word ontos, and being. It's from the idea of being or existence in and of itself, and saying the very idea or concept of being or existence demands that God would exist. Mm. Um, so one way of putting it would be that um, if we have definite God would be, for instance, God um, is the uh, maximally perfect being. So he has all perfections. Right? Um, and existence is a perfection. Right, so the, the assumption would be that it's better to exist than to not exist. Mm. So if existence is a perfection and God has all perfections, then God exists. Mm -hmm. um, and the last uh, of these would be the, the moral argument. Um, so it would say that um, there is a universal moral law, right, and, um, and laws require a lawgiver, and so therefore there exists a moral lawgiver. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, I'm giving you these in three points. There are right. you know, multiple volumes that develop each point because different unbelievers will attack different points. Right. So they get really extended. But those are those are the traditional four. Mm -hmm. And you you talked about the transcendental argument. Um, what is that, and how does that correlate with those arguments? Sure. Yeah. The transcendental argument is a little harder to pin down because there's a sense in which. Um, it requires more of the apologist. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which um, the traditional arguments can um, be written down on paper, and you can just, like I said, lay out those those syllogisms, those three lines, and therefore God exists kind of thing. But a transcendental argument um, will, an apologetically oriented transcendental argument requires that you listen to the person you're talking to and really and find out what's the thing that's really important to them. Mm -hmm. So. Going back to the other arguments, it could be the idea of causation or design, or they can be a very morally um, sensitive person. You want to hear, and then you want to say, what is that concept? So let's say whatever that concept is, is X. Right? And a transcendental argument says that that concept doesn't make sense unless the God of Christianity exists. Hmm. Right? So... Um, give you give you an example here um, based on the, the moral argument, mm -hmm. right? So we can say the the traditional moral argument again would be um, moral law requires a um, I'm sorry there is there exists a moral law law requires a lawgiver therefore God is that moral lawgiver um, or there is a moral lawgiver and we call this 
person, this being God. Mm -hmm. The transcendental approach would actually argue that the concept of morality, the concept of right and wrong, apart from the existence of God, doesn't make sense. Mm. Right? It doesn't make sense. So it's arguing that whether it's cause, whether it's design, whether it is um, moral absolutes, that these concepts, apart from the existence of God, don't even make sense. But, and um, this is why it's a little bit harder to formulate in a neat little three-line syllogism, is, but, the truth is, is that the unbeliever already believes in those things. So it brings in other concepts of being created in the image of God, God's moral law written on our heart. It's a whole kind of complex, uh, it's a whole system, so to speak, rather than just an argument. But it, it, it argues that apart from Christianity, those concepts um, are don't make any sense. They're unintelligible. They're mm. not understandable. Mm. Joseph, how can people utilize these arguments in their everyday encounters? Um, because for a lot of people, they're like, how does this fit in my everyday interaction with people? Yeah. The truth is, for a lot of people, uh, they won't. Um, you know, the average person, and thinking you know, in my own life, and I'm, I'm thoroughly engaged in living in this world, so to speak, but, you know, you don't just go to breakfast and then suddenly have a discussion on the existence of God. So that's... that's we we yeah, can't so, do that? So, yeah, I mean, you, hey, if you can make it work, more, you know, more power to you. And sometimes there are ways. Um, the first thing I would say is, and this is something I think um, it's going to be kind of almost an occupational hazard for apologists, mm. is that we get used to studying the arguments, memorizing the arguments, reading on the counter-arguments, responding, countering the counter-arguments, and etc. Mm -hmm. And then we bring all of this study into our discussion with um, people. Mm -hmm. And there's a temptation, like I said, an occupational hazard, to not treat people like people, mm. and to reduce them to an argument. And so the one thing I think that apologists in general, Christians that want to engage in apologetics and want to um, get non-believers thinking along these lines is you have to listen, listen, listen. Mm. Um, you, know, you, know, you need two or three times more listening than speaking. Mm -hmm. Be so slow to speak. Um, and that's hard because we have all of these things in our head and we're just ready to go. Um, so you have to listen to the people, find out what is important to them, right? Um, there was a, a book that came out, I think it was in the last two years, maybe three at most, called Urban Apologetics. And if you look at the table of contents and the issues that they're dealing with, they're much more like boots on the ground issues that you can actually discuss with people. Because, mm -hmm. And there you can use those issues, ethical issues, cultural issues, as springboards um, to things of more... Um, of greater, even more, even more philosophical like, ethics and mm -hmm. how to ground the morality, etc. But you don't normally initiate a conversation there. At least mm -hmm. it just, it just strikes me, even in my own personal conversations, as a little bit unnatural. Mm -hmm. um, so you find the point there. You, you know, you can, for instance, if you're watching television, you have all of this uh, bloodshed and death and horror and injustice going on, and if you have somebody that's almost utterly uninterested. And sometimes I think a lot of us have people like that. We're studying apologetics, we really want to get into these issues, but we have these people in our lives that are just utterly uninterested and we feel like we have uh, no 
no way to get a wedge in there to initiate a conversation. Um, but you're watching this stuff on TV, and you see that they have moral outrage. Mm. And from there, you can um, engage. And this is if you've done the hard work mm -hmm. of listening, and you're, you've become to a degree with a safe person that they feel like is non-judgmental. They can share their views with you. Mm -hmm. um, and you can ask them questions. Hey, I, 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 I hear you saying that you have a real problem with this here. Mm. And I agree with you. So, you know, I think that this is a, this is a real issue that needs to be addressed, that we need to work through. Mm -hmm. But I also hear sometimes you say these other things that may contradict those claims. Right. Um, and just say, I'm just, I'm just trying to think, I'm just trying to work through how those two things connect for you. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes questions will help get them talking, get them thinking through those issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of listening, a lot of questioning before you uh, do a data dump on them mm -hmm. uh, is uh, one of the best ways to go. Yeah. Joe, let me ask one more question. Sure. Um, and then uh, if you could, after this question, maybe give us some book recommendations um, on the issues we've been discussing. The last question is this. Uh, in, in, in many contexts, a lot of times you may not be necessarily dealing with atheists. You're, you're dealing with people who have some form of God, um, who may be a part of a cult or just might label themselves spiritual. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what we talked about in apologetics methodology applies specifically to the, the non-believer in terms of um, theism. But mm -hmm. how do we as apologists um, kind of turn the corner even with cults or those who may label themselves spiritual and use a methodology that points them towards Christ that is not just for spiritual laws or um, a gospel tract, but how do we do that intellectually um, using a, a Christ-centered apologetic? That's a great question. That's a really good question. I think a lot of it does come back down to um, listening and mm -hmm. having them unfold or develop their own views. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, and I know this is true of myself, and I want to conform my my, my thoughts to the Bible, etc. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of us have a lot of contradictory beliefs just banging around in our heads. What? And we've never had the opportunity to talk through them in one or two conversations where we can hear those things and say, mm -hmm. huh, you know, um, I say this, but I just said this other thing, and if I think about them individually, they both make sense. When I put them side by side, they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times we have to have people talk about these issues and be patient with them. It's almost like spiritual being a spiritual a midwife. You're bringing to birth something, and they don't even know what's, what's there. So right. we have to just give them time to develop those things and say, okay. Um, and another thing is, um, like I said, Listening and questions. Mm -hmm. um, an excellent book on this to a degree is um, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, in terms of questionings, mm -hmm. leading questions so then people can think of things. Mm -hmm. Say, um, because the truth is, it's not just the Christian mm -hmm. that has to account for their beliefs. And I think for so many um, Christians, apologists or not, um, we get used to being on the defensive Mm -hmm. In terms of the intellectual, we have to defend what we believe. And then we become personally and emotionally defensive. Mm -hmm. um, and the truth is, is that 
when if there are two people engaging in this conversation, right, and really are thinking about these issues, it's not just one side that has to account for what they believe, right? Uh, that's just that. Other, if it's not that, then it's just a rigged conversation in which one person's sitting in judgment over the others, and right. over the other person, and say, okay, this is where I land on this subject, and now what do you believe on this, and on what basis, on what authority do you hold those things? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, I think, of course, in regards to cults, you can always ask, why do you believe Doctrine X? That thing that differs from historic Christianity, all right? Um, and so now you can say, do you believe it just because um, a prophet says it? You know, and you can push the what I call like the sola scriptura button. All right, mm -hmm. well, what's what's the Bible? If it, that's if it's a Christian kind of cult, but if not, a lot of times I find that you know it's just so often people have picked up something that sounds persuasive to them, and mm -hmm. they don't know how to ground it even in their own system. They've adopted a system, but they don't know how everything interlocks, mm -hmm. and they don't know how everything fits in. And again, just patience and asking questions and saying, how did you arrive um, to that conclusion? And get yeah. them to think about it and get them to, to justify it. And mm -hmm. then listen to their answers. Yeah. Um, hold, back from, <laughs> hold back the temptation to then just, after they give you an answer, to, to whip out the apologetic math, a mallet and bash them and bash their response, even if you have a totally devastating response. Right. Find that temptation. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And what book recommendations would you give us for these discussions? You you thrown out a couple. You can summarize those that you've thrown out, or also give us some new ones. Yeah. Um. So there was the uh, five views on apologetics. That's just kind of an overview of different. Mm -hmm approaches uh, defended by actual adherence to each of those positions and they get to interact kind of like a written debate. Mm -hmm. um, there's um, Mapping Apologetics, actually I have it here. Um, there's Mapping Apologetics, that's a more recent book by Brian K. Morley. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent overview on systems. Um, that's just in terms of, like I said, understanding the differences between views. There's uh, Faith Has Its Reasons. It's a mm -hmm. big book on, on apologetics, but it's really good. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of the stuff that I would, that I think I'm persuaded is more, um, just I think it's more robust biblically, theologically, etc. Um, I would recommend. Um, um, I'm trying to think here. It's called um, by, it's by Greg Bonson. It's a smaller one. He has several large, as big Van Til reader, but. Um, Always on? ready. Always ready. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. always ready. Direct, directions for defending the faith. Fantastic. Kind of gets you from the ground level biblically and works you up there. Mm -hmm. um, not too large of a book. Of course, the um, one that I uh, I worked on with uh, John Frame and it was originally his book, and we kind of beefed it up and added some things. Is simply his. It's simply called now Apologetics: A Justification for Christian Belief. Mm -hmm. And I think those are excellent. Another one I would say in terms of worldview issues and not just the atheistic worldview is What's Your Worldview? It's a very small book by James Anderson. Okay. Um, and so that one is a real good book to actually give away mm. to an unbeliever mm. because it's not just talking about unbelievers. Mm. It's actually something that they can look and say, what do you believe about morality? And depending on your answer, it takes you to another section in the book. Oh, wow. Choose Your Own Adventure. 
book. And so they can see what they believe and they get to, and then at the end, he'll give you some, okay, these are the things you believe and here's some issues and here's some questions you may want to ask. And so it's, it's a kind of a helpful diagnostic tool. It's a very small book. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Um, so Joseph, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, um, you can go to uh, my website, which is uh, Kingdom View, um, and that is uh, the website is uh, apologet a p o l o j e t period at wordpress dot com. That's my that's my blog there. And normally, any questions you may have, um, uh, you can contact me there. I'm also on Twitter. I believe my it's um, Joseph period e period Torres uh, at um, on Twitter, and um, also Kingdom View also has a Facebook page. So you just look at things. Kingdom View blog is the best way to, to find it. And if you ever want to contact me by email, it's the same uh, email. Uh, emails uh, apologet a p o l o j e t period x, and that's just my Gmail account. Um, and that uh, it's fine if you ever guys want to contact me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it